Welcome to Rare Book School, May Session 2000. We're offering a total of 20 of uh, 32 courses this year, the year 2000, which is the largest we've ever offered over an eight-week group of sessions, which is the largest number of weeks has ever been in session as well. The primary reason for that, although there are many uh, pedagogically sound ones for it, is that we've had a great deal of difficulty getting classrooms. This is a large university, but it's a spread out one, and the historic central grounds that we're presently in is a relatively small part of the university, which occupies more than 4,000 acres. Most of you have never been and never will go either to the north or the west precincts where the law school, the business school, the undergraduate dormitories, the science labs are, for example. We tend to congregate in the uh, immediate vicinity of the rotunda. And that's where we always look for classrooms because of our heavy reliance on the collections, not only of the Book Arts Press, but also of the university library system. Unfortunately, Everybody else who does anything at the University of Virginia is fascinated by this same space. And we have had the particular problem that one has in the process of getting better, which is having buildings going down for renovation and reconstruction. We broke ground last week on a new rare book library at the University of Virginia. It will be largely underground and largely immediately outside the front door of Alderman, so you went right over it. If you stand on the front steps of Alderman Library and look out, way across, directly opposite you, is Commerce, Monroe Hall, the business, the undergraduate business school. To the right is Peabody that many of you know because you've had classes there in rare book school. That building is in the process of renovation so that it can become the new admissions building. The building immediately to the right, as you're standing on the front porch of Alderman, is Miller, which is the admissions building. But when Peabody is renovated to take the admissions staff, then Peabody will be vacated and raised. It was a stable built in the 1850s. It's a no-account building that very few people will miss. When the second floor was put on it after the war. There's only one war here, friends. <laughs> the building was uh, so shoddily constructed that it was necessary to build a wall right down the vertical length of it to hold the second floor up so that it's a rabbit warren of rooms. And there's no way really to do anything except start all over again. Miller, the, uh, that is to say the space presently occupied by Miller, will be the new Rare Book Library's visible presence. It'll be the exhibition hall, the gift shop, of course, and uh, institute offices. The library itself, the reading room, and the stacks will be underground with Lightwell's uh, placed inconspicuously in the shrubbery. With luck, we will be in the new building in 2003 but it means that we're going to have a gypsy existence 
for 2000, 2001, and probably 2002 while the new building is put up. There's a long and, I think, sound tradition at the university to do major construction only in the summer when the students aren't here. So that there probably won't be much of a construction site next summer, but in uh, the 2002, it's going to be a, a pretty big mess out there while the hole is dug and filled in. Still, in 2003, we will uh, have the use of four new classrooms in the new building, and that will make my life much easier. More on this in a little bit. Some of you have been, in fact, just about half of you have been to Rare Book School before, so you know what the scene is around here. But that means that half of you have never been here before. So I invite the half of you who knows what I'm talking about to take a short nap. The umbrella organization that sponsors Rare Book School is called the Book Arts Press. The Book Arts Press is a not-for-profit corporation chartered in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It lives at the University of Virginia by the mutual consent of the Book Arts Press and the University of Virginia. So that when you are in the press room suite, you are standing on state property, but you are not looking at it. Everything in the Book Arts Press and a good deal of the stuff in this room, as a matter of fact, is in fact owned by the corporation, not by the state of Virginia. The Book Arts Press's principal activity is Rare Book School, but it is by no means the only activity of the press. And among others that you are likely to run into, our first publications, we've done a number of videotapes over the years and are distributing others, as those of you who read the electronic bulletin boards know. We have published, in a modest sort of way, books on bibliographical subjects, perhaps most notably Tom Tansel's Introduction to Bibliography, Columbia Seminar Syllabus, and its sequel having to do with textual editing. We have an annual funded lecture, the Malkin Lecture, and many of those have been published by us and are available. We also sell the sort of thing that you would expect to find in a notion shop, and indeed we have a notion shop on Friday where you can buy Book Arts Press aprons and mugs and that sort of thing. That shop will be open Friday between 4 and 6. One of the other major activities of the Book Arts Press, which has been in business now for nearly 30 years, is to serve as a switchboard, broadly speaking, for rare books in this country. There have been about 2,500 different people mixed up in rare book schools since 1983. That is the great majority of the people active in rare books in this country. There are perhaps 2,000 rare book librarians in this country. It's very hard to come up with an exact number because so many rare book librarians have other duties. But it's something like that. It's not very much more than that. In addition to that, there are archivists whose duties are primarily non-historical, are primarily ongoing records management rather than uh, historical manuscripts. They are, in fact, larger than the rare book community. They're probably about three 
3,000, 4,000 people, but many of them have no interest in what we do because they're not concerned with older materials, although there's a small group within the manuscript uh, community that is very interested indeed in uh, old books because uh, they're directly related to the old manuscripts in their care. My own entry into this business was in the early 1970s when I set up a program for the training of rare book librarians and antiquarian booksellers at the Columbia School of Library Service. And rare book school probably in considerable part is a result of my years at Columbia is in fact a school. It is not simply a collection of courses. And as a school, it has certain preoccupations and predispositions, one of which, and perhaps most importantly, is that wherever possible, it deals with objects rather than with pictures of them. We try very hard indeed to get books into classrooms, old books and new books alike, and anything else that anyone wants to use. We have a very good collection of videotapes indeed, and a very good collection of substitutional formats, and a considerable working library of secondary sources on the various aspects of the history of books and printing. But still, in our classes, we try where possible to engage students with objects, the more so in that it is becoming more and more difficult routinely for students to look at old things. Rollo Silver used to talk very engagingly about this. When he came into the profession as a student of the history of rare books in the 1940s, Members of the American Antiquarian Society, for example, of which he was one, had keys to the building. They had 24 hours a day access to the stacks of the American Antiquarian Society. That's inconceivable to anybody who knows the collections today. Inconceivable that several hundred members have 24-hour-a-day stack access and uh, access to materials which, by present-day standards, are almost uh, unbelievably valuable. We've all, those of us who have uh, rare book collections, have all been in the position where we've had little choice but to put increasing constraints on their use because of the dangers of theft and of destruction by overuse and by photocopying. Still, when all is said and done, we try, where possible, to use materials rather than pictures of them and over time have at least made some fairly substantial inroads in that direction. Rare Book School is also a school because most of the people who teach in it are either former students of mine from the Columbia days, Martin Antonetti, John Bidwell, Donald Farron, David Ferris, Joan Friedman, Robin Hallwiss, Melissa Mead, Richard Noble, Alice Schreier, Sam Streit, Susie Taraba, Dan Traster, Peter Van Wing, and David Warrington, and several others are all graduates of the Columbia Master's Degree program from back in the days when it was still existing and flourishing before the closing of the school in 1992. These are people I've dealt with for a very long time. The other faculty members are uh, people I've met along the way. Many of them started out in rare book school. And though are no sense formerly former students of mine, I've had 
something to do with the education of a good many of them. And uh, while it is obviously the case that rare book school faculty teach their own courses and have intellectual control over what they teach, I do strongly encourage them to teach from objects wherever possible and to try to get these objects into the hands of their students in an environment that is increasingly attractive to do the opposite. We all know that substitutional formats are getting better all the time. We all know that you can spend the rest of your life on the internet playing, looking for things, and more and more frequently finding them. But there's, as Mark Twain put it, in a different connection, there's a difference between lightning and a lightning bug. And there's a difference between a medieval manuscript and a picture of one. The picture is very useful, but it is not, in any sense, a complete substitute for the object itself. Somebody finally has to know what we're doing. So both the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School have similar goals and objectives, which are to support the study of the history of the book, rare book librarianship, the antiquarian book trade, book collecting, and related subjects. All those who have been to Rare Book School and who are still living or active and willing to be listed can be found in the Book Arts Press Address Book, which many of you get because it's a perquisite of membership in the Friends of the Book Arts Press. There are copies around in almost every room uh, in the Book Arts Press suite. You may want to take a look at it. It will give you a sense of the number of people we're dealing with. 2,500 people in our world is a lot. It's a very small world, but uh, a lot of the lines come through uh, the rooms down the hall. The Book Arts Press developed as the laboratory for various courses I was teaching at the Columbia School of Library Service beginning in 1972. I was given a room about a third the size of this one to start and a room about this size beginning in 1975. And we gradually began collecting the equipment and more slowly the books and other materials that we have today. There were about 400 people who took my uh, descriptive bibliography courses at Columbia and who form the hardcore alumni body of the School of Library Service uh, so far as Rare Books is concerned. And Rare Books School was developed in a considerable degree in starting in 1983 because uh, the graduates of the program needed a summer camp. Once upon a time there was a little girl who uh, lived in a family that had an annual visit paid by an aunt. And on one of her annual visits, the aunt talked to the little girl about her piano lessons, which she was then taking. The following year, the aunt was surprised to discover that the little girl was taking the violin. And she asked what happened to the piano, and the little girl said, oh, I've learned that. 
Well, clearly a one-year master's program, no matter how intense, leaves certain holes to be filled in. Thus, Rare Book School, a collection of courses dividing up what I had been teaching at Columbia, but into uh, segments that anybody could take in pretty much any order, and taught by people who know a great deal more about the subjects at hand than I could possibly know. The programs left Columbia University in 1992 for the simple reason that the trustees of the uh, university closed the library school, so we lost our base of operation. The program uh, was by then quite a prospering one, and there were invitations for us to stay at Columbia under uh, different rubrics, but it seemed logical at that point to get out of town, and certainly we've been very happy at the University of Virginia. The Book Arts Press had no corporate existence until 1992. I set the corporation up when I came here. It was, as you would imagine, very difficult to get the Book Arts Press out of Columbia University because it is always the attitude of institutions. No, we don't want it. No, you can't have it. Institutions aren't very good about giving things up. Not that they care one way or another, but they have no mechanism for they have no mechanism for doing it. And getting the attention of the Board of Trustees at Columbia long enough to get permission to remove the Book Arts Press, something that they did not know that they owned or cared, proved to be astonishingly difficult. And the separate board seemed a logical solution to this problem in the event that we ever moved again, the more so in that in Virginia we're not dealing with a private corporation, we're dealing with the Commonwealth. And I'm sure however difficult it is to get stuff out of Columbia University, it's harder to get things out of state government. So when you hear me emphasizing that nothing that you're likely to see around here is state property, I mean that. It's very important to our continued existence. The Book Arts Press is governed by a board of directors whose members are Martin Antonetti, Ellen Dunlap, Peter Herdrick, Catherine Morgan, and Nicholas Pickwold. Martin Antonetti is curator of rare books at Smith, teaches in rare book school, and has for a long time. Ellen Dunlap, who is taught in rare book school, is the president of the American Antiquarian Society. Peter Herdrick is uh, the director of all of the Book Arts Press videotapes. He's also my executor, and since my estate is mixed up with the Book Arts Press, his uh, presence on the board will someday in the far distant future uh, be of some, use, of some utility, I think. Catherine Morgan is uh, assistant director for rare books here at the University of Virginia. Nicholas Pickwode is now back in independent practice as a conservator in England, before which he was... Uh, chief conservator at Harvard and has taught uh, many times in rare book school since 1987. There is an addition to the board of directories, an active advisory board to the Book Arts Press whose members include William Barlow who co-teaches the book, the book collecting course with me, a, a, a tax accountant in uh, San Francisco. Peter Graham the director of the Syracuse University Library and the founder of Ex Libris. William Joyce, now the head of special collections at 
the at uh, Pennsylvania State, and at whose advice the board came into existence. Catherine Kais Lieb, the editor of American Book Prices Current, and one of my oldest friends. She is four days older than I am and has never let me forget it. When she sends me a birthday card, it says four days on it. And Robert Wedgworth, the former dean of the library school at Columbia, recently retired as the director of libraries at uh, the University of Illinois and a great friend to all of our proceedings during the uh, eight years that I worked for him at the School of Library Service at Columbia and to whom we owe the continued existence of the Book Arts Press because in the absence of our ability to get the trustees interested in the Book Arts Press, Wedgworth simply gave me permission to remove the collections. The permissions were eventually achieved, but it was by no means certain at the time that they were, uh, that this was going to be possible. <coughs> the Board of Directors owns the Book Arts Press. It owns the teaching collections. It owns the uh, printing presses you see in the, the Book Arts Press press room, the type, and the wood type, and the printing house generally. It owns the binding collections that are in the rotunda. There are more than 4,000 cloth and other uh, books in the dome room of the rotunda that uh, are our principal 19th century and 20th century cloth and paper collections. It owns the illustration f files that I'll be using in class this week, now a considerable resource. Almost every course in Rare Book School is supported by a collection of books which are used only in that course. And there are now four stack ranges in the basement that are filled with, I'm uh, sorry, uh, three stack ranges, uh, six half stack ranges of uh, boxes that just say pick quote, pick quote, pick quote, pick quote, pick quote, and so on, uh, that include examples that we have collected for his courses over the years where the chief utility of the material is the present condition of the material. They're there as objects, in other words, not for their contents. And the books are used only by Pickwode in order to keep them in the condition that he finds usable. The same is true for many of the other Rare Book School classes, Sue Allen's course in particular, and above all, the descriptive bibliography class, which a number of you have taken, and which is an immense collection of heavily described books. It occupies 36 boxes downstairs. Much of what we own is valuable because of the value that has been added to it because of our cataloging. It's junk, but it's heavily described junk. It's junk but it's junk that the instructors have been using in class for years, and they'd miss it if it weren't there. We have, for example, an embroidered binding, 17th century. It's on a, a Book of Common Prayer, uh, English probably 1625 or thereabouts, rejected by the Morgan Library. That is to say, never a part of the Morgan Library collections. A donor uh, offered it to the Morgan, and it was refused as being not up to their standard. Well. It probably isn't, although it's not bad. But it's the only 
embroidered binding that most of us are ever likely to handle because no one is going to let you handle their embroidered bindings anymore. You get them dirty just by looking at them. They were done largely by professional needleworkers to show when you went to church in uh, 16th and 17th century England, for example, that you're not only pious but rich because they're expensive and they didn't last very long. It's a kind of object that we confront all the time in the history of, of the book. An enormous number of books, and including a great many of the most expensive ones, were bound in cloth, bound in velvet, bound in satin, with elaborate bows and ties, most of which have simply worn away and been discarded because they were intended in part for, uh, they were bound the way they were for their show value to say we are not only beautiful but we are rich. But their survival rate is low because the bindings were intrinsically frail and did not prosper under, under either handling or neglect. In 1986, one of my former students, Alan Asif, who was then cataloger at the Grolier Club, uh, died uh, at the very young age of 28 uh, from congenital health problems. But his family gave us Alan's already considerably reference, or already considerable reference collection, and that was the start of the collection that you see in the Book Arts Press classroom where Deborah Leslie will be teaching with the hollow square of folding tables that you went by on your way to the press room. It's probably now the most single valuable resource the Book Arts Press has in terms of its monetary value. We've spent more than $100,000 on the books in that room, the new books in that room. You all know, uh, those of you who buy books on books on your own, how irritatingly expensive such books are, especially out-of-print ones. And we have, over the years, been able to get pretty much what we want as a basic collection for a price for that, uh, for that room. And you will notice, uh, hanging by strings off the bookcases in that room is what's called the Descriptive Bibliography Exit List which is a list of the books in the room arranged in the order that they might be read in. So it's a reading list that's arranged in the order of reading, which is a very difficult sort of reading list to put together when it has 450 books on it. But it's also the one that's by far the most useful. Take a look at that sometime while you're here in the week. Those of you who have taken descriptive bibliography don't need to. You know it well. Rare Book School pays its own way. But all of you who are mixed up with education in any way know that high-quality education is very expensive indeed. And so far as I am aware, high-quality education never pays its own way. It always has to be subsidized. The chief subsidizer of Rare Book School is a Friends organization called the Friends of the Book Arts Press, and about half of you are already members of it. The Friends 
contribute uh, at various levels annual amounts for which they get uh, mostly undying gratitude. They also get the Book Arts Press Christmas card, which those of you who get it know is not like other Christmas cards, and the Book Arts Press Valentine, which is not at all like other Valentines, and the Book Arts Press Address Book, and various other bells and whistles. The Book Arts Press is now contributing uh, well over $50,000 a year in cash to the Book Arts Press, and about half of that buys the teaching materials each year, about $25,000 a year, is what is buying the teaching materials which you are using in your classrooms. $25,000 is not an enormous amount of money in this business, but $25,000 every year begins to be after a while. So that though we by no means have everything we need, especially as regards older books in good condition, the collections are beginning to uh, have some power because of uh, constant pressure in areas where we have needed to buy things and finally been able to. I say that the Friends of the Book Arts Press is the chief supporter for Rare Book School and the Book Arts Press, but that is not really true. The chief supporter of the Book Arts Press and its activities is the University of Virginia, and we must never forget that. We do not pay for the use of any of the rooms in Alderman or Clemens. We have no indirect expenses at all. We do not pay heat, we do not pay light or air conditioning, we do not pay room rent. Uh, and moreover, the University of Virginia pays both my salary and that of the administrative assistant of the Book Arts Express, Donna Rose, so that Rare Book School has no expense from either my salary or that of the administrative assistant. You'd have to see the budget to realize how consequential that is. At Columbia, a quarter of my salary and half of my assistant's salary had to be made up out of Rare Book School funds. That was a quarter of the gross of the budget, more like a third, and it meant that Rare Book School always lost money in direct expenses. So that it was very difficult to keep Rare Book School going, and indeed, when if the school was not in chaos as the result of its imminent closing, Rare Book School would have had to cease operation probably in 1988 or 89, and we left a cumulative deficit at Columbia of nearly $200,000. I'm happy to tell you that Columbia's ability at bookkeeping was so appalling that they never knew that this was going on. Those of you who deal with large universities will not be terribly surprised by this. The university got the school's endowment of several million dollars, so you needn't feel too sorry for Columbia about this. But it meant that we were in a budgeting situation that was essentially untenable, and one that is simply not true here at the University of Virginia. In direct expenses, we went into debt, and in fact quite badly into debt, for the first several years at Virginia because we had nothing. We had to buy everything all over again. We were able to bring the collections, but we could not bring the cameras, the uh, carousel projectors, and all of the equipment that you need to run a school. Just look around, the coffee pots, the carts, all the things that is an independent operation, you suddenly find yourself having to buy all at once. But you know, beginning in 1984, 
with the first Robert Dugan gift, we were able to pay off our debts, and since then we have been well in the black and uh, have no financial uh, worries at all at the moment, especially by comparison with the situation five years ago. The Dugan gift in 94 enabled us to uh, start a permanent endowment for the Book Arts Press, which is now into six figures, so that we have, in fact, a considerable cushion that protects us against disaster in the event of uh, <coughs> a rare book school being wiped out for some reason, something that you always have to think about uh, in this world of uncertainty. But back to the University of Virginia and its contributions. The University of Virginia Library makes available these spaces, often at some inconvenience to itself, and opens its collections to Rare Book School in ways that are simply astonishing. This is not particularly true either in the two courses that are being offered this week, but there are some weeks in Rare Book School when of the 23 periods, is that right? Oh, four times five. There, no, there, there are 19 periods uh, that the Rare Book School week divides itself up into four a day for four days and three for Friday. We can typically have Rare Book School classes in special collections looking at things for every one of those except usually the last one on Friday. So that uh, the staff of special collections in a general way figures that Rare Book School triples its work during the summer. We have two staff members in Rare Book School that spend most of their time in the Rare Book School stacks during Rare Book Schools, pulling books, not only for this week and tomorrow, but also for next week. Talked to Caroline Brashears in residence this week. She lives in the stacks during some weeks, the Rare Book stacks, pulling things. Another benefaction of the university library, which simply makes two of our staff members, members of the special collection staff for the duration. If they did not do that, we could not look at the hundreds of books we look at every week, especially vault books, because it would be impossible to get that many books out into classes and back again. Many of these are old and valuable books, and it's not just a question, as many of you know, of taking them off the shelf and putting them out. They are in chemises. The chemises are in boxes. The boxes are in other boxes. So then laying out a hundred books, you've got 150 boxes that they came in. And we'll be tied to you if you get, if you lose the relationship between one and the other. It takes a very, very long period of time to do this, something that most students never even see. When we used to do classes at the Morgan Library, we used to have to start them at 10 o'clock because nobody could get into the Morgan uh, vault until 9 o'clock to start the work of pulling the books for that day's classes. And it took an hour for the curator, Paul Needham, and his assistant to pull the books. Now, there might be $10 million worth of books in the classroom for the rest of the day, always two Gutenbergs for openers. So the sheer mechanics of using the object itself makes it 
considerably more remarkable than it might at first glance seem that we concentrate so heavily on making the objects available wherever we possibly can. It is an immense amount of work and logistics to get 50 or 100 objects into a classroom every day. And there are many classrooms that use more, there are many courses in rare book school that use more than that. There are typically 200 objects in each of the descriptive bibliography museums, and there are four of them. That's 800 objects for one class in one week. The bookkeeping that is involved in something like that is very complicated indeed. And if it weren't for the steady good humor of the UVA special collections staff, we just couldn't do it because it adds immensely to their work. So the Book Arts Press has never been in a stronger position than it now is. That being said, it has a very long way to go. And this is the oughts part of the speech. The Book Arts Press ought to be doing a lot of things that it presently is not doing, cannot do, is too lazy to do, isn't smart enough to do. In the first place, it ought to have more space. That will be, to a considerable extent, addressed when the new building comes in. But at the moment, we're very tight indeed. We had four classrooms that we use normally in Peabody. Peabody's gone. So there was a real question as to whether I could run Rare Book School at Virginia at all this summer because I had no classrooms except the two that we're using this week. That, thanks to Karen Wittenborg in the library, has been considerably relieved, although it restricts us to four classes a week because those are the only rooms we have until the Special Collections building goes up. We ought to expand our activities. We are turning away more people every year. Uh, last year we turned away one in three applications, and while they were not spread evenly over all the courses, and some courses never sell out, there are many courses that people are now waiting three and four years to get into. And I am regularly receiving uh, more than twice as many applications for the illustration course, and Deborah Leslie has on occasion received three times as many applications for her course. Now, there's no real sense to this, especially for my illustration course. There's only one principal requirement for taking my illustration course, ignorance. And if you're too clever in your application, I will raise questions with you about taking the course because you know too much, clearly you don't need it. But we restrict our classes, and in the case of the illustration class, for a very good reason indeed, because of the amount of material that's passed around. We restrict our classes pretty rigidly to 12 people, and doing 12 at a time, it takes a long time if there are any large number of people wishing to take a class. I'm teaching the illustration class for the second time this year, uh, this week, and teaching it again next month, uh, or again in July. But we already have nearly twice as many applications for the July session of the illustration course. And it's still May. It is the only course of its kind offered in the country. But that doesn't say very much because practically all of the courses in Rare Book School are the only ones of their kind offered in the country. It's worse than that. So far as I know, most of the courses that we offer are the only ones offered in the English-speaking world because how many people finally want to take a course in the history of papermaking? How many people want to take a course in medieval and early Renaissance bookbinding structure? 
These are really very specialist subjects. And there's a tension that grows here because we all know how basic an introduction to, say, Victorian bookbindings is in the one week that Sue Allen can give to the subject in rare book school. And yet you go home and you tell your friends that you spent a week studying 19th century cloth bookbindings and they're going to think that this is a bit specialist. A friend of mine at Columbia many years ago, Howard Schless, said, used to say, I am the world's expert in 1682. <laughs> this was Poems on Affairs of State. A friend of mine at Yale is the world's leading expert in 1683, but I do 1682. Well, there's a lot to learn, but though those of us who wish to learn it are very enthusiastic about it. There aren't very many of us, really. Remember that figure of 2,000 rare book librarians? How many antiquarian booksellers are there in the country that have more than a purely local ambition? Well, there are 500 members of ABAA. So double that, 1,000 perhaps, 1,000 bookselling firms that have any ambition beyond local used and antiquarian. So you see, our community isn't growing. These numbers are still not very big. If there are 1,000 manuscript, uh, that is to say 1,000 archivists with a serious interest in historical manuscripts, I would be surprised. There are certainly far fewer than that who are members of the manuscript section of uh, the Society of American Archivists. So now we're up to a maximum of 4,000. Then you add the book collectors. And there are many serious book collectors in this country, but most of them have no interest in taking courses or joining anything bibliographical. So perhaps our universe is five or 6,000 people total. It really isn't very much larger than that, I think. And the fact that 40% of them have come to rare book school, 40% of that number have come to rare book school, shows you how small a community this still is. Because of that, the likelihood of rival rare book schools does not seem to loom very large on the horizon. And though there have been good classes offered uh, on occasion around the country, uh, rare book school is considerably larger than everything else that I am aware of put together, including the Rare Books and Manuscripts pre-conference. So our obligation, not only to continue offering what we're doing, but also to expand it, it seems to me, is a fairly obvious one because there isn't really anybody else that's doing this. And yet, as we all know from our own experience, there's an immense amount to learn in rare books. And all of us feel like amateurs in most areas of the history of the book. There is so much of it. And we may know something about 1682, but there's a lot out there besides 1682. And what Howard Schless meant is that he knew something about the political climate in London in 1682 that people were writing poems about. So I think even he would admit that 1682 Florence is something that he could have learned a thing or two about. We ought to do more master's classes. There are now... Uh, several dozen people who have taken more than 10 rare book school classes and are after me all the time saying, now what? And we've had some pressure on the part of these people to take their, the same classes over again on the grounds that nobody can write fast enough to keep up with Nicholas Pickwode anyway. 
But what we ought to be doing, obviously, is offering classes for people who have had the basic classes. We do that with Miriam Foote's class, which is rigidly restricted to those who have had Pickwode's class. We have had master's classes at the Huntington, at the Morgan, and at Princeton, and hope to do more of them. But they are, even to a greater extent, than is the case with the Rare Book School itself, a labor of love. When you have eight students paying uh, $600, $700 apiece, you're looking at less than $6,000 that you have to work with. By the time you pay an instructor and pay the instructor's expenses and pay for the coffee breaks, especially in a place like the Morgan, where every cup of coffee is $11 wholesale, you really don't have very much money left over for anybody to be doing this for anything except love. The stakes, in other words, are appallingly small for the amount of work it takes to run a class that's going to be using large numbers of valuable books. We hope to do more of them, but it's going to take more staff to do it. There are certainly many institutions that would like to do it, and a great many students that would like to take courses. Finally, there are a great many courses that we will never be able to offer at the University of Virginia. We do not have the resources to do them. Medieval manuscripts, chief among them. Christopher Clarkson takes his course in medieval uh, and early Renaissance bindings to the Walters Art Gallery when he teaches it here. That is three and a half hours away, each way, because uh, Baltimore is the nearest collection of any size of untampered with medieval book bindings in America. There are only three in the country, the, the, the Morgan, Princeton, and uh, the Walters. And if you're going to teach a serious course in the subject, you have to have access to one of those three institutions. Well, those of you who've taken Clarkson's course know it is a very long day when you're driving three and a half hours and spending seven hours looking at books and then driving three and a half hours home. We need to offer such courses at the Walters. And we're certainly working in that direction on electronic matters. And could work with a fairly rudimentary web page. I've now seen the errors of my ways in a number of directions. In the first place, saying that because you do one thing, you don't need to do something else, is like Harvard saying, because they have a good chemistry department, they don't need a physics department. In reality, it doesn't work that way. Everything gets mixed up. And if you have uh, activities that you want people to be able to follow and profit by these days, you need a fairly sophisticated uh, electronic doorway to that information and material. Most of you have seen the Book Arts Press website. It, it does what uh, we've needed it to do, but it needs desperately to be database-driven so that it will be possible to keep it up to date as it gets more and more complicated. We need to put more of the Rare Book School reading lists onto the web page. We need to set up structured reading programs along the lines of the uh, descriptive bibliography exit list. And we need to start setting up documents. For example, an encyclopedia of 19th century cloth binding patterns, which you can have in Tansel order, in Sue Allen order, in Gaskell order, in Sadler order, in BAL order, in any other order that you want, simply by clicking on the appropriate button. 
with sufficiently good scans so that you can get in and see the cloth grain. Now, nothing prevents us from doing that except time and energy. The technology is absolutely there and is routine. And there are people in this library, David Seaman in particular, who is eager to work with us on that. But what is true of binding patterns is true about everything else we do as well. Electronic substitutional formats are no excuse for the real thing, but they are very handy in the absence of the real thing. We feel an obligation to do some of this work in particular ourselves because we think there's a better chance of it's being done in a way that will be most useful if we do it. There's a bit of a messianic uh, implication to that statement. Uh, but look, I mean, if you are doing 19th century cloth binding uh, patterns, then I think you would agree that Sue Allen is the person that you want to advise you on the subject. And that is exactly what we're trying to work out uh, in setting up our own web pages on the subject. So that though it may not be right and it may not be good enough, it will be pointing in that direction and the people mixed up with it will at least be fairly close to the uh, further end of the best knowledge available at any given moment. I've been under enormous pressure in recent years as a result of the failure of the Columbia Library School's rare book program to encourage something that resembles formal training for rare book librarianship in this country. Now, rare book school has worked very well for many of you, but those of you who are now rare book librarians have the advantage of jobs and institutions that are helping to pay, in most cases, for your rare book school educations. What about people who go to library schools that have no rare books at all, and most of them have none? How do they break into the profession? How do they get jobs? It's increasingly difficult, I think, to do this, but it's going to be increasingly necessary for somebody to do it, because a generation that really starts with mine, I was born in 1941, I'll be 60 next year, uh, and extends well into uh, the younger people in this audience is is getting older. And I don't know how old rare book school students are, but I can guess. And it seems to me in looking at rare book school audiences that every year they get about a year older. Or they get very nearly a year older. I mean, you know, there are no children in the audience tonight. And by children I mean, or very few, by children I mean anybody the, under the age of 45, of course. Uh, there has to be a next generation. I mean, everything that we are doing to try to save the past for the future is uh, going to fall to pieces if we're not succeeded by people who will, if necessary, defend their collections against their superiors. Because so far as object-based collections, that is, of course, what the name of the game is going to be over the next 50 years. We are all going to be under enormous pressure to get rid of our objects because we will be told uh, what they have to teach us has been fully satisfied by the electronic substitutions which we have made of them. We must not deprive the future of the past, and that is exactly what we will be asked to do. In the same way that rare book librarians and archivists were asked to do it 
when photographs came in, when photostats came in, when microfilm came in, when Xerox came in. I mean, they won't do, obviously. And I'm confident that two centuries from now, people will be able to look at a Schubert manuscript and uh, be able to say what he had for breakfast and uh, discuss his mental state at the time that he was writing the notes. But whatever it is that people will be able to do with manuscripts two centuries from now, they're not going to be able to do it if they have nothing but our electronic copies of them. It's probably the biggest single challenge that uh, we are going to be facing as a collection of interlocking professions, which is trying to see to it that a, at least a representative selection of the objects themselves survive our current infatuation with substitutional formats. We're under considerable pressure to set up an internship program working out of the Book Arts Press collections, which are now very useful for self-study. And I'm sticking one toe in the water on that one this fall. I have accepted Linda McCormick, who is assistant curator of rare books at North Carolina State, as an internship, as an intern, to do an internship at the Book Arts Press this fall for a month. She's being sent by her institution and at their expense and will spend a month in the collections, working with the collections and working with me, just learning things. Uh, and the payoff for us, there will be no money exchanged uh, hands, is that Ms. McCormick will also work in our collections, which need help at absolutely every state. Rare Book School needs more staff. Rare Book School is a full-time operation of two people at the moment, and you're looking at it. In the summertime, during a Rare Book School, it increases sometimes enormously. During our big Rare Book School summer sessions, we have 12 or 13 full-time people. But for most of the year, it's just the two of us, and that's not enough. We must increase the Rare Book School staff if we're going to increase the level of activities. And I am 60, or very nearly so. Uh, I'm not quite ready to toddle off, thank you very much. But you know, you don't get more energy every year. Most of you are old enough to begin to suspect this. So we're looking towards hiring a third full-time person for the Rare Book School staff. And that will enable us to... Uh, fulfill some of the oughts that I've been talking about. The, the money for that is not going to come from the University of Virginia. When the present dean of the faculty retired, I'm sorry, when the former dean of the faculty retired three or four years ago, uh, and he was the person who brought me here, or one of them, I asked him, what should, now that you can tell me, what should we ask for that we haven't got? What else can we get out of the university? He gave me a very long look, and he pointed out that I am the only full-time faculty member in the humanities in this university that has a full-time assistant. There are others who get paid quite a bit more than I do, but they have half-time assistants. And he, he suggested that I just keep quiet about what the university could be doing for me. I've raised Rare Book School tuition this year, and the reason for that is to help pay for the third person. 
because basically your book school is being subsidized by my work week and there's simply a limit to how much that can go on endlessly expanding to meet uh, extended needs of the programs. We ought to have a bigger endowment. That will help, obviously. For a long time, it was impossible to have any endowment, let alone a bigger one, because nobody took us seriously, mostly and uh, primarily myself. During the Columbia days, we had no independent existence. There was no money to give money to if you wanted to support the Rare Book School. You gave money to Columbia University and hoped it would end up in our in our pockets. Uh, we will begin much more systematic programs to raise endowment money, not, I think, so much from individuals, you will be relieved to hear, uh, as from corporate institutions. We are fulfilling many of the goals and objectives of a number of the more interestingly wealthy corporations uh, in this country. Uh, the Mellon, the Getty, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Delmas Foundation in particular. And uh, have just begun to have conversations with all of them. Remember last year's Valentine. The fact that you are better than anyone else does not mean that you're any good. It's better than nothing. But maintaining high-quality education is extraordinarily difficult in my experience. It's like maintaining a really first-class restaurant. It takes a lot of work, and it never takes any less work. And it's the same thing over and over again. And if you do not maintain discipline, and you do not maintain standards, then you will run into a situation that was nicely described by the chairman of the French department at Emory University. Emory had just stolen the French department of Johns Hopkins and had the uncomfortable situation where they had four or five hot shots in from the north and a residual Emory French department faculty that was appalled by what was happening. And as the chairman of the French department, who was from Hopkins, said about the situation after a couple of years, in achieving excellence, it is not always possible to be comfortable. The reverse is also the case. In achieving comfort, it is not always possible to be excellent. And yet we're a very small field it seems to me that the least we can do is to be good at it. The least we can do is uh, to do the best we can in uh, collectively preserving the nations and the world's patrimony uh, as best we can in the face of very considerable difficulties, financial, and uh, philosophical that uh, make it hard to preserve physical manifestation of the past. I-64, that many of you came in on today, after all, runs right through Thomas Jefferson's best farmland. He would have been the first to say the world is for the living. But clearly there's a balance between that which survives and that which does not survive. To a great extent, we're all leading 
the procession to the dump. But it does seem to me that the world is going to be a better place if somebody is at least leading the procession to the dump. If some sort of informed decisions are made about what is kept and what is not kept, we will make many wrong decisions, we will make many errors, but it will be better, far better than random. So I think uh, with any sort of luck and uh, given continued good times in this country that uh, the Book Arts Press is on the verge of becoming substantially larger and of doing substantially more. And uh, some of you, including I hope myself, are young enough to be around to watch our candles burning at its various ends. I hope you'll all come and continue the conversation in the press room. Forward and back, forward and back, now we go back. <laughs>